Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider's senior editor, Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor, Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And senior editor, Haley Fouch. Hello. Today, we will be talking about Hamilton, the popular Broadway musical finally arrived on Disney Plus this past weekend. And so now a show that you either knew probably just from the cast album, or maybe you were lucky enough to catch it on Broadway or with a touring company now is far more accessible as a lot of people I knew rushed to Disney Plus to finally get a, not just a look at the show, but a look at the show with its original Broadway cast, which is huge. And so we wanted to dig into sort of the show's legacy, how it plays now versus uh, when it was first uh, on Broadway and just various aspects of it. And I guess the, the first question I wanted to ask for, for both of you, starting with Haley, is what was your introduction to Hamilton? Did you come at, like, how long have you been listening to the cast album? Did you see it on broad, or Broadway or on stage? So just to dig into those questions. Yeah, sure. Um, I wasn't, like, early, early guard on it. It was on Broadway when I first got into it. But I think it was right fresh on the Broadway debut when all the buzz started going around. I started trying to listen to the soundtrack and, you know, it's very intimidating and long and uh, emotional. So I did it really in pieces and would find a new song that I would get obsessed with and listen to that to death, then go to a new one. And then finally I was like, okay, I have a sense of the scope of this thing and listen to it all the way through. And then did that a million times and have not stopped <laughs> ever since. I listened to at least one song from Hamilton pretty much every day of my life. Part of that is algorithmic determinism. Spotify knows I like it, so they play it for me. <laughs> but I do seek out certain songs on certain days to make me feel nice or sad, depending on what the day calls for. And um, I was lucky enough to see the touring show in L.A. However, we went on a night where we had understudied Burr, and we will get into like how important Burr is, but that was like not acceptable work. <laughs> like what we were in, it, it just changes the show so formatively if the core piece of Burr isn't working. So watching that uh, on Disney Plus was a completely different experience than seeing it in the theater. Adam, what about you? Uh, so I listened to it, it. It's a very distinct memory, and it's kind of funny. It was on one of those, uh, when we were at Complex, those New York trips, when we would fly to New York for the, the yearly meeting, um, and I brought Sam, my girlfriend at the time with me and we listened to like part of it on the way there and we finished it on the way home and it was like a night, uh, plane and it was like dark. And as it finished, like she was just like bawling on an airplane <laughs> as we were just like listening to Hamilton. Cause it, you really are, you need to set like in terms of listening to it, it's not like just, I'm going to hop in my car and listen to the next track. Like your first time through it's, it's really beneficial to sit there and like experience the story. And so it just like hits you like a ton of bricks at the end. Um, and then it was lucky enough to see the touring company of it in Tulsa, actually, last year, two years ago. Um, and it was good. Like uh, we didn't have wonderful seats, but like it was nice to finally see what it looked like on the stage and the visualization of it. Um, 
and to see what that rotating stage looked like. And the cast was pretty good. I think it was like the Philip company um, and they were solid. Like I, I did, we didn't really have any major complaints or anything. Um, and so it was fun to experience like that. Um, and now Matt gets to be an asshole and say how he saw it on Broadway. Well, I did see it on Broadway. <laughs> I have a thing about that work trip that I will never forget. I got up, you know, every day to put in for the, uh, uh-huh. the lottery and I tried so hard and I just, no, obviously not. And the last night we were there, I got in the elevator at the hotel and this really kind but very intoxicated woman stumbled in with a bunch of Hamilton swag. And I was like, oh, you lucky bitch. And she was <laughs> I'd never even heard of it. My friend just got lottery tickets. It was oh, really no. good, though. I, I hate that kind woman forever. <laughs> well, so we had only listened to part of it on the way there, and, like, we liked it. And so while we were in our meeting, Sam was in the hotel, and she was like, should I go in and try and get lottery tickets? And I was like, yeah, maybe, but, like, I don't know how long this will be. And she ultimately decided not to go down and try and get them. But, like, now, like, we still talk about it. It's been, like, like probably at least five years, four years. And we still are just like, ah, you should have gone down there. You should have gotten in line. You should have tried. I mean, it's, I will say, I will say like Broadway was great. I don't think it would have, I think it's not so much even the Broadway of it. Like that's all well and good. Cause that's, you know, where it started or technically it started in, I forget the, it started like a, a smaller theater before it went on to Broadway. But in any event, I, I get the importance of Broadway, but for me, the importance was just seeing it on stage because up to that point, I had just listened to it a bunch of times um, on uh, as the cast album, I just listened to Spotify. I would, I remember one day I was working, I would like, I listened to it from start to finish and then just went right back to the beginning and listened to it start to finish. Like, that was my work day, like, that was the soundtrack of my work day of just listening to Hamilton all day. And but you see it on stage and it really adds an entirely different element, not just the fact that there are certain moments that are not on the cast album, some pretty key moments, especially the ending, which we can get into. Um, but just the way it's visualized in terms of the, the, the dancers and the lighting and the performances and just all these little added things, it's just like, oh, I've really only been getting half the story up to this point. And so when you see it perform, you get the whole picture. And that's why I'm really glad that actually it's now on Disney plus so that everyone who has listened to this album can see the totality of what you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda was going for and, and what Thomas Kale worked for and, and all this cast and everyone involved, that it wasn't just some good songs. It's really a, a great musical. And I think that that's really important. Um, with So now that it is on Disney+, Plus, uh, this is the original cast. And for me, I was really just floored by how good everyone was. Like I knew the, oh yeah, of course, they're, of course they're going to be great. And it's not like when I saw it on Broadway, like the actors I saw were bad by any stretch, but like, like David Diggs, my God, (laughs) you know, (laughs) just exploding off the screen. And I'm like, I I got a little angry. I'm like, how is this guy not a bigger star right now with this much charisma? Like it's those kind of things. For me, it was uh, Leslie Odom Jr. who really, I don't know, it doesn't matter if you've listened to the soundtrack a billion times. You can't quite understand what he's doing with that character until you see his physicality and face and the way he he makes him this sort of ambitious, embittered, but rather nerdy fella. I didn't expect the sheer nerdiness of him to come through, I think, in the in the way he behaves. And it, it makes you 
feel even more for him because you see that like you know not just want to be in the room where it happens dude wants to be a cool kid so bad which is is not that guy different temperament can't join the revolution with his like his peers he's he's got to play his games he really stuck out to me and of course uh of course david diggs who like is no doubt going to be huge i mean he's already i feel that he's aside from lynn on the path to the best post hamilton career right now but he's outrageously talented and it was also the delivery of little lines like um when uh hercules mulligan does his it's hard to have sex of a course it's a corsets and um lauren's replies whoa no more sex I never heard that line that way. And he played it with such humor that it made me like guffaw out loud, which is, this is a crying show for me, not a laughing show. So all of those elements were, I don't know, it was totally different than any experience I'd had. Like seeing it on the stage, very different seeing this movie with the original cast and those little touches they bring to these things you've heard a million times. Yeah, it was very funny. Um, And I think Thomas Cale did an incredible job of capturing uh that spirit on stage and honestly like this is unlike it's a way to see hamilton unlike you've ever seen before because even if you're on broadway you're not that close so the fact that they got cameras on the stage i think they shot it over the course of three days they shot two live performances with cranes in the audience and then they shot one performance with no audience with the cameras on the stage just over the shoulder so they could get up in the faces and i thought that brought a lot into it i was really Obviously floored by Debbie Diggs, um, Leslie Odom Jr., but also Renee Elise Goldsberry, I thought was just tremendous. And Jonathan Groff is a hoot, like just so funny. And that the King George performance is hard to see, especially like I saw Hamilton from the balcony. So like he stays still, but it's all in the facial movements and the little like little tiny movements that he's making that I couldn't appreciate from my seats where I saw the stage version. But now on Disney Plus, you can just watch Groff just like spit with venom um this kind of spurned lover uh and he's just so perfect in it also i never really like i don't know maybe they just didn't show because i also was in the balcony so i did not see things very well but like i didn't realize that king george had such a presence in the reynolds pamphlet which really contextualizes that Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, on the side just being giddy and just loving all the drama yeah Yeah, I, I love the way that Kale captured this. And uh, Mark Harris made a good point that, like, you know, this kind of theater capture is rare for any stage show to get. Like, it, it'd be nice to be like, oh, let's do this for more Broadway shows. And I agree. Yes, let's do this for more Broadway shows. But the financial, you have to kind of be a Hamilton-sized success for someone to make that level of investment where we're going to, you know, pay this much money for these much cameras, for these cameras and this editing and this direction to really capture the show this way. Most shows, when they're filmed, it's like one camera in the balcony for historical preservation rather than, you know, this Disney Plus extravaganza where it really does, Tom, I think Kale did his best to make it feel cinematic within the confines of the stage. Um, and I and I say that not to be sort of dismissive. I just say it is like one day there will inevitably be a, a Hamilton movie that looks different than this. And so and I like the fact that it doesn't try to get rid of the stage. I like that it's it's it acknowledges like the work that he put in as the director of this stage play. But 
also sort of like there's now still room for hopefully a talented director to come in and, and really visualize what I think is a pretty cinematic musical. I mean, if you look at uh, a track like Satisfied, Satisfied is like playing with time. And it's so weird to think about that in a stage musical, but it does it. It, it rewinds and has the characters reverse. And you can sort of see that cinematically uh, if someone wanted to do that. Satisfied, I think, is the perfect example of how he fused the two forms because he is, you know, obviously making room to appreciate the, frankly, psychotic choreography of that sequence between <laughs> the two songs. But he's also getting in really close with both of the actresses. He's cutting rapidly to sort of showcase her mental state and confusion and all these things that you wouldn't get if you were just watching it on stage. And I know that, like, they did things slightly differently, of course, because they're good actors, knowing that there was a camera up here when they were filming then versus when the camera was out in the audience. I know that, like, um, it, when, when Hamilton comes to Burr in the middle of the night, can we confer, sir, that scene, um, Leslie Odom Jr. has had in interviews, like, all that sort of expression work of what he's stepping away from inside his house where he keeps holding up a finger that really was not something he played so much daily in the shows. It was something that him and Kale kind of worked out together for shooting close up like that so that there was a little more character moment to that that you would not have seen if you were seated in the balcony, let's say. That's interesting. Yeah, we we like put it on while we were like doing other things and didn't intend to like watch the whole thing in a sitting, but like was just enraptured it was just dead silence in my living room for like uh like at least like the first 45 minutes straight and then it was just like yeah we're just gonna watch it just gonna watch the whole thing now and what i love about it is that it's so uh, you know i think all three of us have listened to that cast album a lot but now there's just another way to experience it and like as we were watching it's like oh yeah we're gonna watch this a lot like it's gonna be something fun to put on while you're cooking or you know something fun to just sit down and watch again because it feels like feels like every time you watch it there's probably something you didn't notice before that that some little moment or something that you pick up on um it's just a tremendous work of art and it's it's kind of mind-boggling to me that it was able to like the music is this good the casting is this good the performances are this good the stage show is this good and now like the filmed version of it is this good because the film version could have been very stale yeah. uh, and very boring. I was, I was surprised. So I, I watched it twice last week, once for a review. And then once um, my wife was out of town, so she came back and we watched it together once it was on Disney plus. And I was, one of the things that I'm very grateful for both times is that there's no cutaway shots to audience reactions, which I think yeah. are the, is the corniest shit imaginable to yeah. be like, just that look on your face, like looking <laughs> awe at what I've accomplished. And like, there's none of that. I genuinely like it was it's not until the end. I'm like, was this even filmed with an audience or did he pipe and sound to like fill yeah. the laugh mount lines or whatever. But, um, you know, I, I feel when they were going ape shit after wait for it. And I too, like did a standing ovation in my own home. That I was <laughs> like, Oh yeah. There's an audience. Yeah. And so, like, I, I feel like it's, I'm with you, Adam. I, I feel this is just something that is very good to revisit. And I, I, to me, the one drawback of the Disney Plus of it all is, like, I kind of would have liked, like, a 4K, you know, feature-rich kind of 
uh, Blu-ray for this because originally it was supposed to hit theaters in October of 2021. That was the original plan. And then the pandemic happened and Disney Plus is like, hey, we need this now. (laughs) So (laughs) let's just release it over We did though. We we did. did No, I'm not saying like it was a bad call. It was just like, yeah, yeah. In in regular times, we would have been able to to wait for it. But uh, (laughs) no. I, I also I hope they do a release because it's so stupid, but it did bum me out to be like Southern mother, <laughs> like instead of Southern motherfucking yeah. Democratic Republican, it's this weird sound in the middle of one of the like most hell yeah moments or when you knock me down, I get the back up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I got for your children. I don't have children. I just want to make the show. So put also, that down yeah, I, and again, it's it's sort of a, it's a it's a very thin line. Like again, I can't speak for like you know every parent is different and every child is different in terms of like what you think your child can handle. But it's sort of like, well, if we remove the f bombs, then we've really salvaged it. I'm like the opening line is, "How does an outward bastard son of a whore?" <laughs> <laughs> and like you know, my, uh, we were we we kind of screened the film for um, we have a we have a 12 year old niece. And so, like, that's kind of, like, right on the line. And, like, you know, we're kind of, like, you know, what is appropriate? And we kind of were, like, you may not want to show her um, say no to this. It's a very sexualized song. It's about adultery. Like, it's... Yeah, exactly. So, it's... Again, I don't want to tell people, like, how to parent, because you know your child better than I ever will, but it's... It's still it. I, I kind of I, I wish there was like the the regular R-rated version, and then like Disney Plus, you can figure that out. I did wonder if it was part of because it had to be rated because it was going to be in theaters, so it probably would have still been PG thirteen in theaters. I would imagine because I right. wondered if if part of the negotiation was the idea that this will be the Hamilton film. And this is something that will be in schools like this is something that a bunch of schools will want. And a lot of schools have a no rated R policy, even though like my sixth my sixth grade teacher showed us my sixth grade history teacher showed us the Patriot very often, which is not historically accurate in any way, shape or form. (laughs) Um, We also watched watched the last Mohicans in that class. but I, I wonder if that was part of the negotiations. And if I'm Lin-Manuel Miranda and if I've made this piece of art, you know, if I want it to reach kids like that, I can understand giving up two fucks. Um, but I do hope there will be a theater, like a, a home video release that like an unrated edition, like they did with all those dumb Apatow comedies where it was like unrated, but it was just like a bunch of like outtakes. Now just like put the two fucks back in and that's the unrated version. <laughs> I mean, I to me, that just, just seems like the more sensible, like just release it with like, you know, original Broadway production and then Disney Plus pg-13 version yeah you know because there will be a theatrical release like they want that money like they that will be a thing and i will happily give it to them yes i will go see i was gonna say if you release two versions you get more money yeah disney loves money just give let (laughs) me give you money yeah Uh, let me give you my money disney please and it's such a it's such a silly thing to get hung up on, but it's also like rooted in my whole very long standing grudge against the MPAA. So it's not it's not just like give me back my southern motherfucking Democratic Republicans. It's like you guys are dumb. Your scale true. is dumb for all the reasons Matt just explained. This is dumb. 
Yeah. It's arbitrary. There's yeah. no reason that three fucks gives you an R rating other yeah. than just like arbitrary nature. Like the anyway. five second rule of like what's okay for kids or something. Right, exactly. <laughs> like at no point is the MPA is like, well, we talked with child psychologists. And yeah. now if you just <laughs> if you say fuck once in front of a child, it's fine. But if you say it three times, they'll stab you. And so we can't <laughs> can't say it that many times. Um yeah, I, I, so also like on this most, so what's interesting about this most recent version, this Disney Plus version, is that some people are coming to it now having never, ha never having any familiarity with the cast album, uh, let alone having seen it on Broadway. And it sort of has, ra has kind of raised like fresh objections in a way that like, I guess would have been more niche. Like it's harder to raise objections against a Broadway show because like you can, you can put it out there and, and there were, there were articles like, well, Hamilton's not historically accurate, you know, and someone wrote that and like, but like it didn't get a lot of play because people just kind of shrugged and be like, I'm not seeing, I'm not going to get to see this play anytime soon. So why do I care either way? But now that it's out there, uh, you know, the discourse rises. <laughs> always. And, always. And so I'm, I, I'm kind of curious, you know, what y'all thoughts are on, let's start off with historical accuracy of the musical where everyone is singing. <laughs> I think Did Alexander Hamilton really sing this much in real life? Live. <laughs> it's very stupid. And I think, but I think it's true of all art and of all films. I think it's the rare case that you get a film or a piece of art that is historically historically accurate, but also artistically and thematically satisfying. More often than not, you have someone like Lin-Manuel Miranda who reads the Ron Chernow book, gets inspired, creates a musical with its own themes, but is also speaking to the birth of our nation, um, the pitfalls of those founding fathers, but also the great things that they did two things can be true at once um, and the unfinished nature of our nation. And then you cast that with non-white performers as uh, a comment on the fact that these are the people that were left behind by the founding fathers and they are now inhabiting these roles. Um, and this colorblind casting, which kind of throws out the window, the notion of, you know, um, only certain people can play certain things. But I think, you know, art should make you curious, like especially historical art. So the point of Hamilton is not to say, this is the definitive account of Alexander Hamilton's life. And this is exactly what happened. The point is to say, this is what inspired Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda about Alexander Hamilton's life. These are the themes that he explored. Would you like to know more? Then do your own research. Like read the Ron Chernow book, do more history research. Like a three hour musical is not going to be a treatise on history. That would be boring. And if it was entirely historically accurate, it wouldn't be narratively satisfying because life, it, life doesn't follow fine narrative uh, flows, um, no matter what uh, cradle degree biopics may tell you. Um, so I don't know. I just think it's dumb. Yeah, it we shouldn't like, look to our art for history lessons. Well, it feels like storming in and be like, hey, these cliff notes weren't, weren't totally accurate. Yeah. Don't make me do the reading. <laughs> Like, if you want a history book, those exist. It's not like you can get that. But like you said, like Hamilton exists for a different purpose. It is historically inspired in the way that like, you know, Selma is historically inspired. And yeah. this notion that like, no, 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 if it's not 100% accurate is therefore 
propaganda or like I don't it's art like you know and you can you can take it or leave it as like how does this art work for you and how does it work in the context that it's telling a story and I'm not saying that like all you know always departing from history is good sometimes you leave interest you know adaptations will leave interesting historical facts on the table for no you know for no good reason and you're like why did they leave that out so it's it's all sort of Adaptation is tricky, and it shouldn't be held to the standard of why is this not a textbook. Yeah, I um, so like uh, agree with everything you guys said. Obviously, on the principle of adaptations are not history books, and this is like a very common, frustrating sort of lowest common denominator argument I find against uh, creative interpretations of history. They're different mediums. I do like the the conversation that's happening now, I think is an interesting reflection in the change in America and our culture and our discussions in the five years since it came out on Broadway. And, you know, specifically the way that it, it, it addresses, but does not dig into the fact that the founding fathers were by and large, almost entirely slave owners. Um, I believe Hamilton didn't own slaves, but there's evidence that he did do slave trading for uh, his family, his, you know, his wife's family, the Skylers. That's a valid concern, and it definitely is recontextualized in the light of the conversations that we're having more now than we ever did five years ago. But what I find interesting about the show more so than trying to be a 100% accurate depiction of history, I'm, I'm really moved by what it means for today rather than thinking about then. The fact that we have this cast of color who's out doing all this promotion for the film now, spreading their message to more ears than would have ever heard it. The, the casting itself, is to me a more powerful act than focusing on the past, the, the, the focus on the future, on what this means for the future of theater, um, what this means for, I mean, there's a 30 minute interview on Disney Plus you can watch with the cast that had some real ass talk I could not believe I was seeing on a Disney streaming platform. That's valuable. That's valuable in an immediate way for new generations, new generations who will, grow up in a way that we never did going, wow, Thomas Jefferson was an asshole. And you might not, you know, it might not be like in the show that Thomas Jefferson was an asshole who raped his slaves and had many children with them. But this generation is now primed to understand that our our forefathers, our heroes of this country were very flawed, selfish people in a way that we were never taught when we were young. And I think that has value. And I will end this rant with one more thing. Um, to me, the power of the show is not in its depiction of history, though that is interesting. To me, the power of the show is in the way it puts the power in the hands of the individual. You know, I picked up a pen. I wrote my own deliverance. He saw systems he didn't like. He fought for a country he believed in. He changed the world with the power of his mind and his pen. And when he saw something he didn't like, he made active efforts to change it in the time that life gave him. I think that's why the show, for me, makes me weep so horrifically. It's like, it's only powerful because we as individuals are powerful. And we see in that either what we are doing, what we're not doing, what we could be doing, 
we see the the power put back to us to change what we don't believe in about our country. And that's why I can't stop weeping when I listen to, you know, history has its eyes on you or all of that, because it's, it's in your hands, the way that it was in the hands of the founding father. The country belongs to us, and it's our job to make it what we see it as. That's very well said. That actually, just to, to piggyback onto that, that reminds me of kind of when you talk about, the you know, who the speaker is. I think that, you know, it's not just in a vacuum. I saw, I saw a really sharp tweet uh, over the weekend sort of saying, like, it's kind of funny that there's a conservative backlash to, to Hamilton because if you sell it, because the idea of why not a rap about Alexander Hamilton seems like an idea straight out of the 1994 conservative playbook. And like, you can sort of see like, yeah, of course, a bunch of white dickheads would be like, I'm Alexander Hamilton and I'm here to say, good to talk about the USA. Like, oh, stop. I feel, oh, that, should we cut that out? <laughs> nope, nope, no, that's going to stay in forever. Oh, good. Um, no, but like, it's, it's, like it's the voice of Lin Manuel Miranda. The fact that he come, you know, he is. I don't know. I, certainly on his father's side, he's a first generation American. I don't know if his mother. Uh, I know that he comes like both his parents are of Puerto Rican heritage, but I don't know if she had immigrated. Her family had immigrated. Either way, he understands immigration and like the promise of this country in a way that I think that a white American would take for granted. And I think he sees both the promise and the uh, delusion of this country and and trying to mix it. I think it's his voice that makes it very powerful in a way that like can't be ignored and the fact that his origin makes this a way that it can't be ignored. And so when you get this uh, sort of, I wouldn't even say it's a, a colorblind casting. I think it is very deliberately filled with color except for King George, mm -hmm. the, you know, the old power structure that is on its way out. Um, is is the white guy and i think that's a powerful statement uh in and of itself so i feel like it's and the town crier and the town crier who who supports <laughs> king george yeah uh samuel sebring <laughs> <laughs> uh and so yeah i feel like it's it's not just a matter of like i made a hamilton rap but it's like i made it from my perspective as, as an immigrant, as a person of color, and injected it into this story in a way that someone else may not have told it that way. And in fact, other people did not tell this way. I mean, there's the musical 1776, which is where the line, sit down, John, you fat mother, is <laughs> a reference to, there's a, I think there's a song in 1776 called like, sit down, John. There so, yeah. Mr. Feeney. There you go. There you have it. So, so people have made musicals about the American Revolution before. They just weren't particularly good. <laughs> well, and that's what I mean. What what's so impressive about this as a work of art is that it is everything that you guys just said. It is um, this kind of push to make you think about your country in a different way. But it's also like these characters are compelling in and of themselves. And I think you have to willfully misread it to think that Alexander Hamilton is portrayed as this perfect hero. Like it's it's a tragedy. Ultimately, um, you know, Alexander Hamilton is a flawed human being. Most of the characters on uh, in this show are flawed human beings. They make mistakes. They make good choices. They make bad choices. And this whole idea that like this generation is now just like shitting on the founding fathers and saying they're all horrible people is I, I think it's hogwash. Cause like 
human beings are fallible. I, it, and I think it does us no favors to put historical figures up on pedestals and pretend like they never did anything wrong because that makes them not relatable. That makes us feel like it's out of reach. It makes us feel like we there's no way we could ever do anything like that because um, we're not perfect. We're not like them. Um, and Pope, he's nerfed. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. I just find that really compelling that this is a, a show filled with imperfect beings striving to make their country better. Um, all going about it their own separate ways. Some succeed, some fail. Some have pure motivations. Some have, have impure uh, intentions. Uh, but that's all a comment on like how the country was built. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a stage show that's just saying like the founding fathers sucked. The end. Well, well, I also feel like you know it's. I think something that we also need to get away from is that depiction does not equal endorsement. That just because someone is therefore in something, all their views are therefore passed off as agreeable or acceptable or, and that's just not the case. It's just, you, you present an idea, but that doesn't mean just by presenting the idea within an art form that that idea is therefore should be acknowledged and agreed upon and, and never uh, engaged with. Well, and it's when you talk about like being flawed people versus being 100% pieces of shit, it's I I vacillate between this and my own, you know, as we struggle with what what is America in 2020 and uh, what has it always been and what was I taught versus what is real. I, I struggle between this really like, you know, George Carlin has a lot of really amazing bits about America, but one of the best ones is about how it's all America is bullshit, it's utter bullshit. The founding fathers were a class of wealthy, uh, slave owning landowners who told us that all men are equal while reserving the vote entirely to white, wealthy landowning slave owners. Um, and that source of like everything I believe is 100% bullshit. And I do find value in a show like this that kind of reminds me why the ideals were valuable, even if the people carrying them out were tremendously flawed and, and you know, gives you something a little higher to believe in than the sort of hagiographic uh praising of these these daddy founding father figures we want to love us all these centuries later that that were never depicted in in an honest way to begin with um the the, one of the other powers in the show to me is to say it's not really about them they're the story but it's about what they created and did they do a good job let's let's that's still a discussion all the things they're fighting about then are still things we're fighting about today like the state's rights versus federalism that never has become anything less of a contention uh in the century since so it's the the concepts i think hold really true and what should be focused on more so than these very flawed very old individuals who didn't write with the same letters we use and certainly wouldn't understand uh, if we're still having the debates they were having, they would not understand the context that we're having them in today. I also feel like, you know, the, the musical is also a reflection on not just the politics of, you know, the late 18th century, early, you know, early, or yes, late 13th, or late, so late 1700s, early 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, Centuries always mess me up. But it's also a reflection on our current politics. I mean, the fact is, is the character of Burr is very much an assault on 
you know, the say nothing politician. The fact is like the fact that there's line, it feels like you could have a beer with him. Like that's taken from our time, not (laughs) from their time, but like, it's, it's a commentary on where we are now. And so you also have to look at it, not just as like something engaging with the, the revolutionary era, but also with our present era and the frustrations that we feel today. And on top of all of this, like there, we could go on and on talking about the themes of Hamilton and what it speaks to America today and what it means about the founding fathers. But I think that the reason that it is one of the greatest pieces of art created in a century, I think, is that the story itself is compelling and emotional and overwhelming. The characters are empathetic and fascinating and complex. Like these are, they're not just figureheads. It's not like Alex, like when I think of Alexander Hamilton, the historical figure, I don't think of Alexander Hamilton from Hamilton, the musical, because it feels like a distinct character. And all of these people feel like distinct characters. Um, And they're just so clearly drawn with these numbers that so accurately reflect, like Satisfied, I find to be one of the most devastating songs in the entire thing. Um, And it kills me. And same with Wait For It also kills me. And you have this diverse range of of songs that are just perfectly pitched to these characters that tell you exactly how they feel and and how they fit into the narrative. And then it all like there's so much setup and payoff watching it on Disney Plus that I didn't necessarily realize as you get towards the end. um, There are lines that are repeated. There are moments that are repeated. There are there's choreography that's repeated that it draws back on what it is. All of this to say, this is kind of a perfect piece of art. I don't know, maybe? Like, it feels flawless. It feels, and it feels timeless. And it feels like there's not a beat in it that's out of step. There's not a song that's like, ah, you know, that didn't really help that character. It felt kind of unnecessary. It all just flows perfectly together. To kind of tie that back to what we were saying about like having to cull the facts of history to tell the story the best way, one of my uh, my favorite bits of intel from the Hamill tome, the, the Hamilton, the Revolution book, is that um, and Jefferson and Angelica, they they uh, they talked, they knew each other. They were friendly. They, they shared letters. You know, she has that line about when I become this Jefferson, but they actually did meet in France and they became pen pals which seems like it's something you'd want to include in that feud between Hamilton and make that a triangle type thing. But he just couldn't find the space for that fact. And it's fascinating. And you're like, why would you leave that out? But in that culling and that streamlining, he had to find the best story for these characters, not just as a piece of history, but as a freaking three hour musical that that needs to move. Yeah, it's I definitely think it's one of the the great works of great American works of art <laughs> in the the last 100 years. I definitely think it it encompasses so much of where we've been and where we're going and I think does what we want art to do. And so, um before we before we move on, I did want to return to the Aaron Burr of it all because Haley, I want to talk to you about sort of the differences between the Burr you saw and the the Burr of uh Leslie Odom Jr. Um, I would say, well, beyond like vocal strength, which was an issue, um, I would say that it's sort of the difference between, I 
think he was trying to do Leslie Odom Jr. having only listened to the soundtrack and didn't fully grasp the complexity and uh, deviations of the character. Um, certainly there was more cockiness to that portrayal than the sort of like inherent self-doubt you see in, in um, Leslie Odom Jr.'s portrayal though he is certainly cocky you can see that that's more of a veneer than a the self-truth beneath him um i would also it, it felt more like right so let's use that as the example it felt to me that leslie odom jr was playing the subtext and the secrets rather than just playing the text which is always more interesting you know a lot of actors are like i'll never tell you my secrets about my character because that's what makes them so intriguing um it felt to me that the guy I saw was straight up playing text like there was not a second layer beneath that um and yeah it's just not not a lot of performers are Leslie Odom Jr. <laughs> well that's a problem because it is you know it is the story is told largely from Burr's perspective it's his framing of Alexander Hamilton and it's not till the final scene where it's Eliza telling the story and then you get you know, that gasp at the end, which is just, again, a, a perfect thing that's not on the album. And but it completely changes that final scene when you see it on stage, when you see it performed. So the gasp is her realizing that the story is being told, right? This is witnessing the audience up for debate. What no. do you think the gasp <laughs> means? I, I think the gasp is it's her seeing Alexander on the other side and sort of that's her that's her exiting the story that's sort of her her moment of awe as Interesting. it were some people think it's her those two are definitely very popular some people think it's her seeing the future of America and what came from what they did <laughs> just the face melting from Indiana Jones <laughs> <laughs> no no Eliza don't look at it uh. Yeah, that definitely also, like, if that's your interpretation, hits different in 2020 than 2015. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the director and Lynn, Lynn and Thomas Kale have commented on this a little bit. Um, they won't give it up, but their thing is that it's different for every actress who plays Eliza. They make up their own decision about what that means and that it, there really is no hard answer. It's meant to be interpreted. What I do like about that final, you know, when the they pass from Burr telling the story to Eliza, is though to me it further reinforces that this isn't about them. This is about you and what you can do with your own individual power. Because it's no longer the story of rivalry. It's a story of then once once he was gone, what was she able to do with what she had in her time to change the world in the way that she wanted to. Yeah. And of course, you know, you, I literally shouted at my screen because I was already a disaster. Like, like, like stereotypical Italian weeping widow style trying to get through the last 10 minutes of the show. And right before the orphanage, I shouted, I was like, don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> Taking control of the narrative. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you haven't seen Hamilton, it's pretty great and you should watch it. And if you've seen it, watch it again. Cause it's great. What do you think about the, the eventual film adaptation? Do you think Thomas Cale should direct it? Do you think the original cast should come back? Well, do you think Tom Hooper should direct it? I think Tom Hooper should direct it. <laughs> and here's why. 
I hate everything. <laughs> I want it to be <laughs> canted angles. <laughs> if there's dancing, can it be captured poorly? If there's performances, can they be terrible? Um, if there's technology, can he misunderstand it? Um, so, but I would, I would actually say for Thomas Kale, what's interesting is Thomas Kale has signed on to direct a new film adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. And I'm very curious because that the original Fiddler, I believe won best picture. So it's, I'm pretty, I'm curious to see what he's going to do with it. Cause there was a Fiddler revival around the same time as Hamilton. And I think they were nominated for best musical, uh, in the same year. Um, and it was just, it was Hamilton's year. So Sorry about that. It, yeah. Sorry about everyone else. <laughs> yeah, I did look up who did Philippa Sue lose to because she was the the only actor who lost to someone who wasn't in Hamilton, and it was Cynthia Erivo in Color Purple. And I was like, well, well, yeah, Cynthia Erivo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I would say that in terms of like a Hamilton movie, um, I'm not sure uh, who should direct it. Uh, maybe, and honestly, by the time that movie comes around, we may not know who that director is yet. Or, you know, it's, it's so much is in flux and, you know, we can say, I I do feel like Hamilton has made itself available in a way that other Broadway shows haven't, um, especially just like right now with this Disney plus thing. Um, it's really, it's, I think it's always been conscious on their part of like, how do we keep this in people's minds? Not in the sense of like, we'll be forgotten, but just like, we always want to make it available in some way, uh, and keep the reason they did ham for ham when nobody could get tickets. Like, right. Exactly. They wanted, they wanted to keep it alive and not exclusive. Um, but I'm curious to see like, you know, now that it is on Disney plus, will there be any rush for a feature film adaptation? Um, and I, I think maybe not, you know, it's funny. I, I, I keep waiting for book of Mormon to get its feature film adaptation. And it's been like 10 years or something. Yeah. You know, something like that for, for Book of Mormon. And I think part of the re- the hesitance is I think they feel like, well, one, if the show is still making money on Broadway, why why kill that off? But secondly, you know, those adaptations can have real problems, I think. And we saw that. I think the producers was kind of a cautionary tale where you had that ridiculously successful show and then they tried to make it a movie and the movie was kind of blah. And so do you like want that? Like if you're going to do the movie, you want to make sure that you do it right. I think what's interesting to me about like somebody attempting to make this movie, which they will eventually, even if it's in 20 years. Yeah. Um, so much of what, when you see it, especially having seen it in the film, even more so than when I saw it on stage is the, the set design is, you know, it's the scaffolding of the country. It's meant to represent how they built it from nothing. But it also, in being so, is really uh, sparse and keeps the focus right where it should be on the words, the performances. Um, How do you do that in traditionally filmed cinema in a way that doesn't like, that translates that message, doesn't look sparse, and and doesn't, I don't know, I, I worry that the show would essentially become what we got with Les Mis, this really uh, just glamorizing sort of over-the-top focus on actors, not not focus on the actors in a way that they're, you know, they're bringing it on stage and there's nothing to distract you in a way that's like, you can only look here because look at what they're doing. Yeah, I, I also feel like, a movie, like you said, Haley, could really like overshadow 
what works about the show. So, for instance, you take a song like Hurricane. And in the, on the stage, it's really cleverly realized by having, like, the, the chorus lift up tables and put him in the eye, and your mind sort of connects the two that he's in the eye. But for a director director of a film, they're like, okay, this is a CGI set piece. We'll put him in the middle of a... World's End. Re- the finale of At World's End. It becomes the finale of At World's End, and, like, his, his hair's fl- flailing around, but he's also singing, and he's writing. And, like, <laughs> that might look kind of fucking goofy in a movie, like, when you put it like that. So... There, there, it's not a simple, even though the show is cinematic, it's not a simple transfer of one to one. So, what you're saying is, let Gore Verbinski direct the Hamilton. Well, I think Gore Verbinski should direct everything. I mean, come on, <laughs> that, that, he's a bad man. I did see Lynn and Tommy did say, like, the only thing they know about the movie right now is that it will be different. Like, it, it cannot be what the stage show is, which I found exciting. Like, I think that's the right way to tackle it. And if that means like remixing, remixing some of the songs, like, uh, Lynn Manuel is done with the big state. Maybe that's the way they go, because I can't. I uh, I agree. I don't think you can just do that whole thing straight through, um, and just put people on sets. I don't think that works. And my apologies to Tom Hooper. I do actually like John Adams, the miniseries that he did for HBO. Oh, that's good. But I, yeah. But I don't think he would be good. <laughs> I just don't think he should ever do a musical ever fucking again. <laughs> no. But I did for. I completely forgot that he did John Adams, which is like adjacent to the entire Hamilton story. <laughs> Yes. Um, I will also say that um, I'm very much excited in talking about Lin-Manuel Miranda adaptations. I'm very excited for In the Heights and yep. what they're going to do with that. I think that could be a really uh, if, if there is a template for what could go next. I think it could pave the way because I don't think we've had many like new movie musicals recently. Like obviously there was Les Mis and Into the Woods, but like it feels like we've been waiting on Wicked. Like everyone's been waiting on Wicked to see how they do it and to see how well it does before they move forward with any other newer ones. Because Wicked was a similar like just Broadway smash um, that was current and toured everywhere. And Universal keeps putting it on the release schedule. And and Universal said, "Okay, but before we get to Wicked, let's do Cats. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I I do feel like if Wicked eventually happens and it's this massive hit that someone puts the gas on Hamilton. It's like, yeah. all right, it's time. So. All right. Well, with that, let's move on to, to recently watched. Uh, Haley, what have you seen lately? So much shit, guys. I, <laughs> I had the worst weekend of watching. Thank goodness for Hamilton. Um, <laughs> I, I will, before I tell you something wonderful, I will extend a very passionate warning that Desperados is one of the worst, most egregious comedy films I've had the displeasure of participating in in a many, many years. I had, I think, 10 minutes left, and I was like, I'm good, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it decides to run with a very uncomfortable pedophile joke for the entirety of the film. There's uh, someone gets dick slapped by a dolphin. It's just not... Whatever you think it's going to be a fun summary comedy, I assure you it's not. Warning has been extended. Now, if you are on Netflix and want something better to watch, it's not a film, but the new Babysitter's Club series is a delight. It's just wonderful. If you grew up with the Babysitter's Club, you are going to love what they did with these characters. Even if you didn't, it is a refreshing, honest, unadorned look into the interior lives of young girls that doesn't get like mopey about it, but also doesn't play it for cheap thrills and easy disposable content. It's really, truly lovely. I think it's for everyone, but it's especially for 90s kids. 
I uh, I tried to watch the first episode with Sam and she loved it. And I was like, I feel uncomfortable. Like, I should not be watching this. I just like because I didn't grow up reading the books and I think I saw the movie, but it's just like adventures of 12 year old girls. And I was like, this is very specifically for like girls and women and people who grew up on the books and liked it. But I was like, I don't think it's for me. I but it was impressive. That you disagree. Men should be aware of the adventures of young women in the way that we have always been aware of the adventures of young boys via Stand By Me and the Goonies <laughs> and things like this. Normalize that and become familiar with the female experience. That's my argument. I will get, I've told Sam I will give it another shot because she really <laughs> wants to watch it. And I was like, you can watch it. I was like, I just was not super into it. But if, if you want to get into it, maybe I'll give it another shot and give an update next week. But Next week, Adam's going to be like, I'm fucking obsessed with the babysitters. I'm obsessed with the babysitters. <laughs> Let me tell you why Claudia is the best. So we're going <laughs> to exactly. run down. I don't remember these girls. So it was just like very much like, because Sam was like, oh, that and that. And I was like, I don't know any of these things. I don't understand what's happening. So. Well, Adam's wrong and it's wonderful. So that's maybe I'll watch Desperate. Just to spite you. Although that would be a cell phone. That's a yeah. cell phone of the highest order. <laughs> Uh, Adam, what have you seen lately? Uh, so I decided to watch for the very first time Dick Tracy, which I did not care for at all. <laughs> um, I just had never seen it. Uh, and Sam had seen it like when it first came out. She was like, this will be fun. Uh, and like, it's interesting and like how significantly it is a Batman ripoff, like to the point that Danny Elfman is like ripping off his own Batman score. Um, and the production design is all Art Deco, and it feels very, very similar. Like, even the beats feel very similar to Tim Burton's Batman, even though I know that both are comic book adaptations. Um, but yeah, I don't know. This is one that I know people really love because they saw it when they were kids and stuff. But as an adult watching it, I just found it kind of boring, aside from just like the total, like, what the fuck going on with like Al Pacino's makeup and everyone's weird smush faces. I didn't understand what was happening there. Um, so yeah, that's my take on Dick Tracy, a movie that's like 30 years old. Yeah, I have no, I saw Dick Tracy when I was in theaters and like, I have no affection for it one way or the other. I was just like, all right, <laughs> I'll probably watch it at some point, but I'm not like, oh yeah, Dick Tracy. It's on HBO Max, which has a sneakily great, uh, library of movies and shows to watch. But yeah, uh, but you'll yeah. never know if, unless you get, cause you have a Roku player, you know, which is just. <laughs> What a what a terrible oversight. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I watched a bunch of stuff um, because my wife was out of town. And so I was just like, I'll just watch whatever I want. And yet I think the gosh, what do I want to talk about? Uh, you know what? Actually, I'll talk about a film I watched when she was out of town. I finally watched Last Action Hero and I was not impressed. I got to say, I have to say, like, it's a weird film. Like, I, I you know, some people really love it. And. I like the idea of it, like, oh, like, you know, if you're like a, you know, a, a pre-adolescent boy or an adolescent boy and like action movies are like sort of get your adrenaline going and like that love of blockbuster cinema is a thing. And like, I think that's a worthwhile story to tap into. But the movie, like the character of Danny, I guess it is, like, is so rooted in like he's written like, like a jaded screenwriter. So like, he's like, I know this cliche and you're supposed to do that. And it's like, kids don't know that shit. Like I thought Armageddon was the greatest film of all time when I saw it in theaters. Like I wasn't like, ah, that's a plot hole. Like it doesn't, you don't, 
think about movies that way. And so there's this very broad disconnect between the film's sort of wide-eyed ambition about what movies are supposed to be and can, like, provide for you and this then this kind of, like, gnarled, cynical take about, like, what movies actually are. And it doesn't work. And, and the film just goes on and on. And I think it has, like, I mean, they have very troubled production. Um, but I also feel like structurally it doesn't work. It spends too much time in the movie world um, where the stakes don't really seem to matter that much and not enough time in the real world where the stakes actually do matter. Also, it, it doesn't, and when I say stakes, I use that term very loosely because the film doesn't even seem to have like a, a want-need proposition. Like I don't really get like what Danny, I couldn't tell you what Danny's arc is or what Jack Slater's arc is or anything like that. So I thought I thought Last Action Hero was kind of a bust. <laughs> I've not seen Last Action Hero, but I'm glad we could just shit on movies people love when they were kids. <laughs> I don't yep. think I've seen either of those since I was a kid, but listening to you talk about it, Matt, it sounds like that movie is primed for a remake that actually figures out yes. something to say. No, I actually think, like, like if you, if, like, I think Marvel could, like, really make a fun, like, kind of what if. Like, what if so-and-so disappeared into a Marvel movie? Like, a kid got to, like, fight alongside Captain America. Like, that'd be, like, kind of, like, a, a fun kind of empowerment story. Um, but, yeah, as, as what Last Action at Hero is right now, it's not very good. <laughs> um, all right. Well, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Haley, where can we find you on Twitter? You can find me at Haley Fouch. And Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. We will be back with you later this week for a bonus episode where we'll be talking about Eurovision, a film lots of people have seen, and Irresistible, a film no one has seen except me and Adam. So that'll be that show. And then next week, we're talking about Palm Springs. It will be a spoiler conversation. So when that film hits Hulu on the 10th on Friday... Watch Palm Springs because you're going to love it and we're going to dive into it. So oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everyone. We'll be back with you later this week. It's that little Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. And I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.